0: You know, a few minutes ago, um, we sang a song that had the lyric, All I am is yours. Do you remember singing that? All, all I am is yours. And that's not true for anybody in this room, is it? That's not, that's not true for anyone in this room. Uh, no one here is hitting that target that all I am is yours. Nobody is hitting that target 100% of the time. And we, and we sing it. I don't want to be too hard on us here. It's not wrong that we sing it. I sing it. But we sing it aspirationally. We, we sing it from a heart that is committed to that, knowing that we're never going to hit the mark Right on not on this side of eternity, but that we 're reaching for it we're we 're pursuing it, we want it to be true, and insofar as it 's possible with us we 're seeking to make it true that that all I am is jesus christ it 's our aim it 's our goal it 's our heart and and we can sing it because. Because with the Holy Spirit's help, if this is true of you, with the Holy Spirit's help, we're working on it. But we're playing with fire if we sing that song. All I am is yours. We're playing with fire if we sing that song and yet are knowingly and intentionally harboring sin that we have No desire to rid from our lives. I have this going on in my life. I know it's wrong. I know it's a sin. I have no intention of dealing with this. That's a dangerous place to be. To hold something like that back from God. And yet sing otherwise. And we have in front of us today this alarming incident in the life of the early church. And and what we're going to be looking at makes this point with frightening clarity. In Acts 5, we read of a man and a woman, Ananias and Sapphira by name who were very much part of of the early church, the first church in Jerusalem, and who also fell under the discipline of God and suffered the harshest of penalties. God took their lives as a discipline on them and as a warning to everyone else, as a warning to us. And, And the somewhat understated observation at the end of this incident at the end of this this tragedy was is in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church now would you say that you have a great fear of god that you take god and sin so seriously that you have a a right and proper, a healthy fear of who He is. That you tremble before God when you sing, All I Am is yours. Let's look at the passage here. It's Acts five, the first eleven verses. And, and to be honest with you, Roger's already prayed for us in, the, in, in our looking at the word today, but I fear that that prayer is not enough. Acts 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart Behold, the the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I think it's safe to say uh, that uh, we are not fond of speaking about or even thinking about the fear of God. We would much rather spend our time talking about the love of God or the grace of God or the mercy of God or the kindness of God or the blessings of God. A hundred other topics would be preferable to talking about the fear of God. Or, or if we do talk about the fear of God, what we like to do is we like to define it exclusively in terms of the reverential awe of God, that whenever we see the fear of God, it's this reverence, this awe that we have before Him, which is admittedly is part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And in this passage, we see that the fear of God is exactly what it says it is. It's terror. It's terror on the part of the sinner in front of a God who is holy, who is all-knowing, and who is all-powerful. When it says fear, it means fear. And we dare not treat this matter lightly. And so you can see in our notes, this is what we're going to look at. Having great fear of God means I'm going to heed the example of Ananias and Sapphira. And there are some things that I'm not going to do. And in not doing these things, I'm going to be demonstrating that I actually understand something about what it means to fear God. Let's look at the first one. Having great fear of God means I don't trivialize sin. I mean, if I love Jesus and have pledged my life to follow him, that is an amazing and glorious gift that has been given to me to have the grace of God, to be forgiven of my sin and to have the incredible promise of eternity. And many in this room would claim those things. Forgiven, grace given, eternity, heaven awaiting me. But then, having received all of that from God, these incredible gifts, do I also have a corresponding hatred of sin and a desire to be holy, even as God is holy? A sober minded devotion to purity, to rooting out sin in my life, sin that's been forgiven. But nevertheless, is still clinging to me. Because if I don't have that, I risk abusing the grace that God has so kindly given to me. I mean, this is a rampant problem among believers. So much so that the Apostle Paul dealt with it in his letter to the Romans. Which is this incredible treatise on the matter of sin and salvation. By the time he gets to chapter 6, he's in this Q&A format. And he says, what shall we say then as believers? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Grace is a great thing. We all agree with that. We'd rather talk about grace. If grace comes because we're sinners, then if we would persist in our sin, if we'd continue in our sin, that would mean logically more grace would come my way. And since grace is so awesome, that has to be a good thing. What shall we say then? In order to get more grace, should we continue in sin? Paul says, God forbid, King James Version, God forbid, by no means. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Over in Galatians 20, he said, Of all of us, you know, he said of himself, but it applies to all of us. I am crucified with Christ. When we we become the followers of Christ, we go to the cross. Our sin goes to the cross and we are crucified with him so that what's left is only the life of Christ in us. And if we have crucified ourselves with Christ, if our sins are really pinned to the cross, we ought to leave them there. And so the norm for a true Christian is, okay, this is the norm. If you're a true Christian, the norm is, I want sin out of my life. Anything else is an abuse of grace. It's to trivialize sin. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it's exactly what they did. It was an abuse of grace. It it was the trivializing of sin. Again, they sold this piece of property, this is verses one and two, and and they, they, they conspired together, husband and wife, to keep back, notice what it says, to keep back for himself some of the proceeds brings only a part of it, as an offering, and laid it at the apostles' feet. The, the, the little phrase, kept back, is only used in two places in the entire scripture. It's used here in Acts chapter 5, and it's used in Joshua chapter 7. You're going to remember this story if, if you know when Israel was taking um, the land of Canaan, the promised land, that they went in and they took the city of Jericho. And when they took the city of Jericho, they were taking out all the plunder from the city. And this guy named Achan took some of, it, of that plunder and he took it back to his tent, and kept it for himself. And no one was allowed to do that. And there was a judgment on his life and he lost his life because he had taken that same word. He kept back some of the plunder for himself. Same word. And the word is, listen to this. This is what's so telling about it. The word is to embezzle. It's to embezzle. Now listen, you can't embezzle your own money. You can only embezzle that which doesn't belong to you. And so Achan, for sure, none of the plunder belonged to him. It belonged to the nation, and they were taking it for the entire nation. He embezzled some of what belonged to Israel, and he took it back. But listen, in in Ananias' case, he owns the piece of land. It's his piece of land. Until the moment he said, I'm pledging the sale of this land to the church, and to the Lord. And in that moment, it no longer belonged to him. The pledge had been made. And in keeping back some of it, he was embezzling from the church. He was embezzling from God. And he was trivializing sin. Peter calls it out. Verse 3, Ananias, why why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, absolutely true that Satan filled his heart, but the decision was his alone to actually do it. In other words, there's never an opportunity for any of us here to blame our sin on Satan. Okay, the devil did not make you do it. The devil can set up the parameters for your sin. He can set the stage for your sin, but the devil cannot make you sin. And so every time you sin, that's not on the devil. That's on you. No one's responsibility but your own. And in fact, verse 4 makes it clear, and we need to be careful here, that the sin was not, the sin was not that they kept back some of the money. The sin was that they lied about it. Peter said, Before you sold it, okay, this is verse, um, I don't even know what verse it is, six. Before you sold it, wasn't it your own? After you sold it, wasn't it still your own? It was yours. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And again, Peter says to him, you've not lied to man. but to God. And three hours later, his wife comes in, verse seven. Peter, evidently being led of the spirit, asked her if they had sold the land for so much, and she confirmed the agreed upon false amount, and then Peter drops the hammer on her. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? We're going to come back to that idea of testing. Testing. And like all sin, and, and it's important for us to understand this, like all sin, what they did is an offense against God himself. We, we can't trivialize any sin. No matter how minor we might think the sin is, we cannot trivialize that sin. Because all sin is an offense against God. Every sin, no matter how small we think it is, how insignificant it is compared to maybe other sins you know about that people, other people have committed, no matter how minor you think that sin is, every sin caused the blood of Jesus Christ to flow at the cross. All of it is an offense to God. I mean, uh, reading through this, and and I couldn't help but make the parallel to, to David. David commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. The consequence of that sin, of course, down the road, is that the child that is born as a result of that illicit act, the child dies. But before all of that happened, David, wanting to cover the whole thing up, kills Bathsheba's husband, has him murdered, So David is now guilty of adultery and murder and conspiracy, and he's caused Bathsheba to sin, and Uriah, poor guy, is a victim of this, but others are complicit in his murder because David commanded it as the king. And yet David, in confessing all of this after Nathan the prophet brings it to him, David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, he says, Oh God, against you, you only have I sinned. It isn't that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or anyone else. He did sin against them. But by comparison, the sin against God makes this seem so insignificant. Every sin, every sin is a sin against God. There is no sin in your life right now that is not worth repenting of, confessing, dealing with, and eradicating from your life. To dismiss any sin that's in your life right now is to trivialize it and to demonstrate that you are not fearing God as you ought to. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, the young pastor, in 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin... As for those in the church who have decided to continue on in willful, intentional sin, persisting in it, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear, which is exactly, when you read that verse, it sounds like a summary of Acts 5. God rebuked Ananias and Sapphira in the presence of all. So that the church would stand in fear. Well, having a great fear of God also means that I don't think that I'm immune to discipline. It's evident from the passage that Ananias and Sapphira identified with the believing community, they were part of the church. Like Barnabas, they were bringing an offering and placing it at the feet of the apostles. They could only have done that if they considered themselves to be part of the church. And so, church person, do not be sitting here right now going, I, you know, this is dealing with unbelievers and I'm a believer and I don't need to worry about this. This is a couple who identified as members of the church who may have been baptized on the day of Pentecost or in the days following. They were part of the believing community. So everything that we're saying here is not for those outside the church. This is for us to hear and be warned by. We've established the sin already, the sin of lying. Now we see the shocking discipline that God brings upon them. Verses 5 and 6, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, dead. Great fear came upon all who heard it young men come, they wrap him up, they carry him out, they bury him. Three hours later, the whole scene repeats. Peter says to Sapphira, he's receiving this word of knowledge from God to deliver. Behold the feet of those, is verse 9, who have buried your husband or at the door. They're going to carry you out. Immediately she falls down dead. The young men come in, they carry her out. Bury her beside her husband. I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira thought that they were untouchable, that they weren't susceptible to the discipline of God. But none of us should be deluded into thinking that we're immune to the discipline of God. Don't think that forgiveness, having received forgiveness and grace, do not think that having received those two things mean that you're actually exempt from God disciplining you. In fact, though this incident is quite unique in the Scriptures, if if you look at the letter uh, some decades later, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. And in chapter 11, he's correcting some errors that they're making around the Lord's table. And he says, in fact, that some people in the church were sick and some, he says, have fallen asleep. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Some have fallen asleep or died Why? Because they had taken the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. They had represented themselves one way, but their hearts were not for the Lord, and they had allowed sin to continue to grip them, yet they were still coming and taking the bread and drinking the cup. As if everything was okay, and they were bringing shame on Christ as a result. And God disciplined them with sickness, and with death now I know this message sounds so harsh but in fact we know from the scriptures that the discipline of God is actually a loving act in fact we have this phrase repeated several times in the scriptures the Lord disciplines the one he loves If if God didn't discipline us, if he left us to our own devices, then there would be no love demonstrated in that. In fact, this passage goes into it a little more deeply. In your struggle against sin, uh, that describes everybody. Everyone here struggling with sin in some way. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, Daughters, my son, daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. This is the normal course of action for us. And, and so I, w- I want you to think about this for a moment. As Ananias and Sapphira, that story is so shocking to us and, and the, the, the visual image of their bodies laying there before Peter and, and being carried out from the room. But, but think about that. Did God love Ananias and Sapphira so much that in taking them out, he fulfilled a dual purpose of saving them from further sin Saving them from from the shame of carrying that sin around and knowing what they had done. I mean, at the end of the day, none of us is anxious to hasten the day of our own deaths. But on the day of our deaths, if we're Christians, one of the awesome things that happens is we're never going to sin again. And from that perspective, I wouldn't mind getting to that day now. To never sin again. And so was God so loving toward Ananias and Sapphira. That he just said you know what. That's the last time you're ever going to sin. I'm going to take you home with me. Save them from the shame of it. And, and at the same time. The, again the dual purpose. Was, was loving the church so much. That he was warning them of being. Duplicit. Of having a divided heart of being gripped with the things of this world, a warning, in fact, that he gives over and over and over again to his sons and daughters. And because this whole incident in chapter 4, chapter 5 is about money and offerings, listen, there's nothing that grips our hearts more than this. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about this, and he said flat out, you cannot serve God in money It can't be both of those things. And clearly for Ananias and Sapphira, they were having a heart issue. Jesus later said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. For Ananias and Sapphira, they simply loved money. That's why they kept some of it back for themselves. And their love for Jesus was not as complete as it needed to be. But but it's not just about that. We, we can't narrow the application down to just one sin. We've already said that the principal sin here is lying. But this could be about adultery. This could be about anger issues and your mistreatment of people. This could be how you're cheating. This could be about a hundred other sin issues that you have going on in your life. A willful, intentional, I'm not going to change this because I actually like this sin attitude that puts you in peril of the discipline of God. God disciplines his kids. Because he loves them. And sometimes he does it severely in a way that only, only God can do. And in order that we would grasp the realities of sin and of holiness and the weightiness of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Don't think that you're immune to any of it. Fear. Fear God. In my preparation for this message, reading different commentaries, and I was researching some different articles, and I found a few and and put some links away for later. And on Friday, I pulled this one out from John Piper, and I realized that it wasn't an article on Ananias and Sapphira, but it was a poem. It was a poem uh, titled, Ananias, Sapphira, and Peter. Peter. And I don't have time to read it um, right now, uh, but we are going to put a link to this in the sermon notes at hbc.info. And he he writes, Piper writes this stirring poem about the incident. And then, and I I read it and I thought, you know, because I'm not super into poetry, but I mean, I read it and I went, well, it's nice. And then I noticed there was an audio link of Piper actually reciting the poem. And I listened to it. And it's anointed of God. It's so gripping. And it made me realize, as I was listening to how Piper treated this whole scene, it made me realize that Peter, who's watching this happen, but not just watching it happen, I mean, Peter's standing there as the apostle and two people have just died at his feet after a conversation. Peter isn't just watching it happen, though. God is actually using him as a conduit of his will. That Peter's actually speaking the words of God to Ananias and Sapphira. That God is using Peter to affect the discipline. He's using a man who in that very moment realizes that just weeks before that had committed a grievous sin against God that was far worse than just holding back part of an offering and lying about it. That that weeks before, Peter had stood in a courtyard and three times he'd been asked if he knew Jesus and three times he had lied and said he didn't. How could Peter not stand there and seeing Ananias and Sapphira both die right at his feet for this sin? How could he not be thinking, I did worse? Why didn't you kill me? Why didn't I fall under that kind of discipline? How crushing would it have been for Peter? Peter? Knowing that God could have and should have done the same to him. Except, as Piper points out in the poem, except for grace. For his own reasons, God decides these things. But don't think that you're immune to the discipline of God. Even the harshest of God's discipline. Rest in the glorious grace of God, but don't abuse it. We also see that having great fear of God means I don't taint the church. Well, the sin was ultimately against God, and we've looked at that. The effects of it would be deeply felt in the new church. And we looked in the last message about what was happening in the church at the time, just back in chapter 4, that a lot of people were selling houses and selling land, and they were bringing the proceeds, all of the proceeds. They had pledged the proceeds, and they brought the proceeds, and they were laying them at the apostles' feet. And we're introduced to this man named Barnabas who does the same thing. Verse 37 of chapter 4 says, He sold a field, he brought the money, all the money, and laid it, At the apostles feet. And the church was simply in in giving these offerings. Was responding to everything that God had done for them. And the church was described in verse 32. uh, As being of one heart and soul. And having everything in common. It was such an incredible. Unbelievable. Never before seen unity. In the body of Christ. And then. In the midst of something that is truly astounding, Ananias and Sapphira come along and disrupt what the Holy Spirit was doing, disrupt the unity of the church. And we don't have time to go into it right now, but I'm telling you a very interesting study is to go through the scriptures and to look at all of the passages that deal with divisiveness and division. And, and repeatedly in the scriptures, God holds his harshest punishment for those who divide the church. God hates division, the Scriptures say. And we need to be so careful that anything that we're doing is not undermining the cohesiveness, the oneness, the unity of the church. And we've already talked about their sins in terms of it being lying to the Spirit. But we all know, and you know this from your own example, it's never just one sin, is it? It's never just one sin. We compound sins on top of others. If we tell one lie, for sure we're going to have to tell three more to cover the original. If we steal, we'll have to lie to cover that. Sins always compound. And so this isn't just the sin of lying to the Spirit. But it's the sin of hypocrisy. Which is another form of deceit. Or it's the sin of glory seeking. I mean, they were trying to project something to the church about them that was not true. Namely, that they were just as generous and just as spiritual as all the other people in the church. They wanted the recognition of giving without the cost of giving. And a couple of things to say here. First, please don't ever think that your sin does not affect the people around you. Every sin has some impact on others. Some sin like that of Ananias and Sapphira has greater potential to hurt others. And in this case, it's hurting the young church. But whether your sin is a public sin or or a so-called you think it's a secret sin, all of that sin has a way of undermining the mission of the church and the unity of it. And if you fear God, you won't want to do anything to hurt the body of Christ. The second thing would be to be aware that God may, no one wants this, but God may use you as an example or a warning to the church. Again, Peter stood there having committed a worse sin repeatedly, but was not taken out, and yet Ananias and Sapphira were taken out. This is the prerogative of God. The reality is, I could be taken out. You could be taken out. Any of us could be taken out. That's the horror of this. Ananias and Sapphira looked like any other person coming to church that day. Like all of you coming to church. They drove up in their car. They parked in the parking lot. They walked across the parking lot. They carry their Bible in. They talked to a few people in the lobby. They came and found their seat. They stood and sang all the songs. They have their Bible open now. They were just like any other person. No one took any notice of Ananias and Sapphira. They were just another couple of people who belonged to the church. They were just like us and they convinced themselves to sin just as we do on any given day. And it's only grace that keeps us alive moment by moment and from one day to the next but make no mistake god is so committed to the purity and mission of the church that he'll do whatever it takes to preserve it including sacrificing members who wound the church so don't taint the church by intentional willful unconfessed undealt with sin one more having great fear of god means i don't test him i said we'd come back to this don't test god doesn't that just make sense that we would not test god at face value testing god just seems like a really bad idea Peter said to Sapphira after giving her, he gives her an opportunity to come clean here, to confess that what they did was wrong. I mean, Ananias is already dead. He's already buried. And Sapphira comes in, but Peter gives her this opportunity. How is it, though, she doesn't take the opportunity. She agrees that they gave a certain amount of money, and that was false. But how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The idea of test here, a synonym would be the word challenge. They were challenging God. Well, when you challenge somebody, what you're saying is, I don't actually believe what you're saying. I'm going challenge, to challenge the veracity of your statement. In Ananias and Sapphira, they test the Spirit of God. They're challenging what the Spirit is saying. Is it really necessary for us to be telling the truth about this offering? That's the challenge. That's the test. They're fronting God over his holy demand on them. And they're acting just you know, any of us who are parents, we get this. Kids want to push the limits with their parents. They want to find out where the limits are. And if mom and dad draw the line, they want to come right up to the line. They want to put a toe over the line. They want to step over the line. They want to find out how far they can actually push their parents. Kids are so naive. Because they think their parents aren't watching or don't know. And they forget that their parents were kids. And we know all the tricks. Yeah, some human parents may miss a thing or two along the way. But let's talk about God again as a parent. Because he doesn't miss anything, does he? He doesn't miss a thing. And if you think that you can test God and not really, have him not really know about it, that's just foolish. Jesus said this in, in Luke chapter twelve. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Nothing. You you think that your thoughts are just your own. You think that that secret sin that you have, that that decision that you've made, that that little corner of your life that, you're, that you've tucked away that's just for you, that you have not yet surrendered to God, you think that somehow God doesn't know about that? That that won't eventually be revealed? In fact, all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, it was said this way. You know this. Be sure your sin will find you out. We're not escaping this. Don't test God. If you properly fear God, you won't test him. So that's it. That's That's a summary from this passage of of what it means to fear God. And I I know that this is a hard, hard message to hear. And this is the price we pay when we say we're going to study the book of Acts and we're going to go verse by verse through it and we're not going to skip any parts because I would have loved to have vetoed this passage and move right on to the latter part of chapter 5. One commentator said of of this passage, if the incident makes you feel uncomfortable, I mean, you all feel uncomfortable right now, don't you? If the incident makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. The discomfort, though, should, should be with yourself and not with God. It should be with your decisions. It should be about the deceit that's in you. Any sin that remains in your life that you are in any way unwilling to deal with. Sin that you've lied to yourself about. Sin that you're lying to others about. Sin that you're lying to God about. Sin that, that you're saying of this sin in your life, this willful, intentional sin. It's not that bad. Everyone has sin. I only do it at work. I only do it at night. Oh, I know what the Bible says, but I don't think the Bible means that. No one knows. Well, I only do that because of what happened in my past. It's my circumstances. They've driven me to this. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him or her. And, and those are all lies. Those are all lies that you're telling to yourself and you're telling to others and you're trying to convince God of and they're all lies. I I, I get that there may be people here who do not have intentional willful sin and you are indeed in the pursuit of holiness and praise God and you can hear a message like this and be reminded and and reflect again on, on the holiness of God and reinstill some of that great fear that we should all have. But I have no doubt in my mind that there are some in this room who have intentional willful sin and are in danger of the discipline of God. This message is for all of us, but it's for some in particular. And it's time to let a great fear of God grip your heart. It's time for you to repent. To repent is to agree with God and to turn from your way of doing it to his. To agree with God is to stop lying. To turn from your way to his is to make a full 180 on whatever the sin issue is in your life. It's time to let a great fear of God grip our hearts and for us to repent. Because if we're going to sing songs with lines like all I am is yours if we're going to sing that we better make sure that we're not intentionally holding anything back from God when we sing that. But that we are wholeheartedly in pursuit of His holiness. Let's be holy even as he is holy. There isn't really a good song to sing at the end of a service like this. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and to pray in this moment. And just as Joel plays, I'm going to invite you to meditate on what you've heard, to think about it deeply. I didn't want us just to kind of walk out the door and in the busyness of the lobby and the parking lot and getting into whatever you're going to do this afternoon and this week to to miss the opportunity here to think about what we've heard. To consider what might need to be swept out of our lives, what lies we need to repent of to set our course again on this path of holiness. So I want you to spend this time in prayer and we're going to leave this room as a place of response and quiet prayer before the Lord. We have some time here. We're ending this early enough that that we don't have to rush away. When you've had a time of prayer and reflection and you've laid some things before the Lord, then you can quietly leave, but please do it quietly and leave this as a place where people can meet with God. And if it's helpful to you to get up from where you are and to come down to the front and just kneel in humility and brokenness before the Lord, then come and do that. The room is yours. To use as you wish and as you need to in this moment. So let's pray and let's respond to him. You are loved.